I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, Los Angeles Rabbi Steve Leader on the eternal search for comfort and solace in the face of horrendous loss and his own admission to reaching out for help. There is absolutely no one who suffers pain better alone. We need each other. You know, the rabbis of the Talmud said the prisoner cannot free himself. It's a very powerful idea. We have to reach out. And a very important Buddhist saying comes to mind, which is, tend the part of the garden you can reach. And later, a touching letter from a father to his children and the reasoning behind an ethical will. Don't wait. Don't wait to ask yourself these questions, to examine your life, to to change your life, to make it more beautiful and more meaningful, and to bequeath all of that meaning and beauty to the people you love. Bequeathing what's most important with Rabbi Steve Leader coming up on Life Examined. The horrendous news out of Texas this week has once again left a hole in our hearts. 19 elementary school children and two teachers were gunned down in their classrooms. At times like this, many of us feel a collective loss. We relate to the mothers and fathers, despair at the slaughtered innocents, and mourn the needless loss of lives. So how do we navigate those feelings of grief? What possible words could give solace to a parent who has lost a child? Joining me this hour is Steve Leader, the senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles. He's also the author of a new book out next month titled, For You When I Am Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. We'll get to that in part two of this interview. Rabbi Leader, welcome back to Life Examined. It's always great to have you here. Of course. I'm always honored to be with you. Well, I, I feel like we need to start with the, the subject that's on uh, all of our minds still. It's, it's been a few days since this tragedy in Texas, but I, I, I want to just open up some space to reflect on what has happened and you know, what's been going through your mind and, and thoughts that come up from your tradition as we, as we process this. Well, I, I can only really tell you what helps me when things like this happen. Um, and unfortunately, this isn't the first. You know, um, we're just past the two-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. Um, and, you know, the Twin Towers. And, you know, this is not the first and it won't be the last uh, tragic event that uh, I'm turned to for some guidance. And so I start with myself, Jonathan. Like, this is how I frame it in a way that's helpful to me. I think about these things like an eclipse. While in the midst of an eclipse, it is is very easy to believe that the sun's light and energy has forever been extinguished. That darkness is more powerful than light. But eventually, the eclipse recedes and our faith in the light and power of the sun is restored. So for me, I find this to be a very helpful metaphor uh, because, uh, and by the way, never would I say this to the parents of those murdered children. But for the rest of us, For the rest of us, for whom it will not be an eternal eclipse, it is worth remembering that the light will once again reassert itself. And, and, you know, I think it's very important and helpful to use an eclipse as a metaphor because the, the truth is that most people are good people. Most people do not walk into fourth grade classrooms and murder 19 humans you know, and destroy the lives of their families. Most people are good and most people are kind and most people are not violent. But there are moments that eclipse all of that goodness. And, you know, in terms of how my tradition views an eclipse, it's very interesting. In Judaism, there's a blessing for almost everything. You're going to eat a strawberry, there's a blessing. You're going to eat a grape, there's a blessing. A piece of bread, there's a blessing. The sunrise, there's a blessing. Waking up in the morning, there is no blessing for an eclipse. And there are so many blessings for, for the 
the wonders of nature, but there is no blessing for an eclipse. And that's because an eclipse was always seen as as the cause in some way, as the result in some way of, of the death of righteousness. And, and an eclipse was a time to increase our introspection. Eclipse, some people even fasted during, you know, after seeing an eclipse. An eclipse is a bad omen for my tradition, it, and it's a reckoning. It is a reckoning with with the ethos of our society and our culture, and it is a call to action. Uh, and it is it is no blessing, that's for sure, but it is a wake up. And and uh, I think these two things are very helpful to me. One, the world is not mostly murderous and evil, and two. When it is, it's time for a reckoning. And yet it's so hard at this moment to, to find light sometimes. I mean, you, you turn to any news source and you see violence erupting in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, again, this tragedy in Texas. And, you know, you and I have had, I think, really important conversations during lockdowns and the pandemic. And I just... I just bring more attention to sometimes this feeling of hopelessness that a lot of us carry, especially on a week like this. Yes, but I think it's important to remember that the news is really a reflection of a tiny segment of life and of the human experience. While the news itself is, I don't know, I can't, I'm not an expert in the media, but I'm going to guess here, while the news itself is 80% negative, 80% death and challenges, life is not, and the world is not. The news is not the world. It is a part of the world, and it is a difficult part of the world, as I said, that needs to be reckoned with. But it is not the entirety of the world, and that is not the entirety of the human experience. Far from it. What do you think is the healthiest way to process shock and trauma? I, I imagine that you're somebody that has had to sit with parents who have lost young children. What are your What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I need some help from you first. Are you asking what would I say? to the parents of those children, or are you asking me what I would say to the listeners? Well, maybe we could start with that first very delicate question of, of, of how you have responded to those that have directly lost people. Yeah, yeah. I will tell you that helping parents bury a child is the most difficult thing I do. You know, it has a kind of trajectory, and at this point, at this point, I would uh, do a lot of listening, especially about the stories of who this child was and what they meant to this family and to this, this school. And I would acknowledge every parent, by the way, Jonathan, who, who's had a young child die that I've ever encountered has wanted to die themselves. And I understand that. And I would look these parents right in the eye and say, we cannot die because children die. We have to live. We have to live to honor them in death as we honored them in life and love them even in death and, and tell their story and experience a different kind of joy again. But I would look those parents right in the eye and say, we cannot die because children die. And, you know, I'll tell you something that's changed in how I speak to parents in moments like this. And it changed because of my own firsthand experience with death when my father died uh, four years ago. Before that, I had a lot of experience with death, but it was vicarious. I was, you know, one degree removed from it. But when my father died, I realized that something I had been saying to parents of dead children was, was not really true. 
And you know, there's this old Yiddish expression that a half-truth is a whole lie. Hmm. And so I was, I was not telling the truth to these parents. So what I used to say, I would sit down in the chapel with you, Jonathan, let's say, heaven forbid this was your family, and I would say, Jonathan, we're going to start the funeral, and this is one of those days where we're just going to put one foot in front of the other until it's over. And I want to tell you something. I promise you, it won't always hurt so much. And then my father died, and I don't say that anymore. Now what I say is, Jonathan, it won't always hurt so often. Because that's the truth. When it hurts, it really hurts. But the frequency of the intense pain does get replaced with a kind of duller ache. Uh, The poet called death the absence that is forever present. But that, that buckling, bring you to your knees pain, it it becomes less frequent, but it still happens and it hurts so much. And I would be honest with these parents about that, that, that the pain becomes less frequent, but when it hits, it's, it's very painful. And, you know, we would talk about the duality of memory, that it's beautiful to remember, but it also hurts to remember. There's so many dualities in the death of a child. Um, but mostly, mostly I would walk by their side. And for those that have not lost, I, I, I can imagine there's still a huge importance of, of having this grief be a communal grief, one in which we reach out to family or friends or our own spiritual traditions and try, try to be with others in this type of a process. There is absolutely no one who suffers pain better alone. No person suffers pain better alone. We need each other. You know, the rabbis of the Talmud said, the prisoner cannot free himself. It's a very powerful idea. We have to reach out. And You know, a a very important Buddhist saying comes to mind, Jonathan, which is tend the part of the garden you can reach. Mm. You know, can we solve any one of us individually the gun problem in this country? And more important than solving the gun laws, can we address the gun culture in the American ethos? No, no single one of us can do that. But we can tend the part of the garden we can reach we can root out violence. We can raise kind, empathetic, humane children and grandchildren. We can teach the evils of objectification, of othering people who are different than we are. And we can pay attention to the mental health and the signs of the people around us we love. You know, Yesterday, I reached out to a psychiatrist friend of mine and I said, can you help me understand how a person could, could be so misanthropic as to walk into a fourth grade classroom and murder 19 people and, and shoot his own grandmother? And the first thing the psychiatrist said to me was, well, it doesn't happen overnight. And what he meant was that someone who has lost his or her soul to that degree, who is so filled with misanthropy, got that way one step at a time. People don't just snap. And there had to have been signs. And I would bet good money that as we investigate, we'll find out there, well, we've already seen postings on social media of his automatic assault rifles. Uh, you know, there are 
there are always signs and people who do this prepare. And the part of the garden we contend, we need to, we, we need to really keep our eyes and our hearts finely tuned to the people around us. I'm really glad you mentioned just this question of, of having us take a very, very close look, almost a personal responsibility at the people we know in our lives that may need help. And because I, I feel that every other day I read another report about teenage mental health issues or suicidality, and I, I think we're both touching on something that is, that is vital right now and that we can all take responsibility for. And we are standing neck deep in the middle of it and we don't even realize it. Four in 10 Americans suffer from anxiety, real anxiety, not nervousness, real anxiety. Four in 10. That means look around, look around at your circle of family and friends. 40% of them are suffering and many of them silently. You know, I, I did a segment last October on the Today Show where I essentially came out about my underlying anxiety disorder and my decision to finally seek treatment for it when it became really paralyzing and unbearable because I had been able to subordinate it for almost my entire life. But during the pandemic and, and for other reasons, it, it just, the basement door flung open and, and there it was in my life. After that segment, so many people and people I know well reached out to me to, you know, connect and say thank you and who helped you and how did you get help and what are you doing and what do you think I should be doing? And my point in telling you this is that these are people I knew very well, but I didn't know that they were suffering. So this requires I, I'm, I'm sorry to overextend this garden metaphor, but this, this requires daily care and attention. And I just want to add on to that because I'm, I'm so grateful for your honesty and that in this country, we have no problem talking about the fact that maybe we have a heart condition or something of that nature, but we are still so reticent perhaps out of feelings of shame to share that we may have uh, a depressive disorder or an anxiety disorder. And once that is shared, it creates such an opportunity for honesty and for healing. And I, I wish these conversations could be happening more around us. So I'm really grateful you said this. It's so important. And, and for treatment, you know, I wear glasses because otherwise I can't read. Nobody cares. You know, um, if I had diabetes, I would take insulin in a second and nobody would think negatively about me in any way. And so we need to get to a point where we accept that store-bought is fine. That's how I like to put it. Store-bought is fine. It works. It works like, like glasses work, like cataract surgery works, like insulin works. And we need... We need not suffer so terribly because of shame. We'll be back with Rabbi Steve Leader after this short break. And just a quick minute for us to say a huge thank you to those of you who join our new Life Examined Facebook group. Please continue to send along your suggestions and share your thoughts with each other, just like members Dan O'Connor, Marie Mancy, Nicole Gaudet, and others have. Also, a big shout out to those of you who donated to KCRW during our pledge drive and mentioned our show. We appreciate your support. We'll be back after this short break. Stay close. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We're continuing our conversation with Steve Leader, the senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles. His latest book is called For You When I Am Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. It tackles the issue of legacy and what kind of legacy we should leave to the people we love. Let's jump back into the conversation. 
Well, Rabbi Leader, we, we started this conversation discussing the events that have taken place in Texas, and I think also discussed some really important questions of mental health. And I now want to try and bridge this to the original reason that we wanted to have you on even before all of this happened is that you've written about some really important new subjects. I, I open it back up to you now because I, I sense there may be some, some correlations between the first part of our conversation and, and kind of where we're going. Well, this book, For You and I Am Gone, is, is about the legacy we want to live and leave. It is both for now and for our loved ones when we're gone. And its structure is the posing of 12 questions that if answered with full honesty will really reveal our most important legacy we can leave the people we love. Because it's not our stuff that's going to carry them through without us. It's our life lessons, it's our values, it's our blessings, it's our guidance, it's our words. Our words will be cherished far more than any material item we bequeath to our loved ones. And the first question that I ask in the book, I answer it with my own essay and then I invited others to contribute. My first question is, what is your greatest regret? And this connects with what we were discussing in terms of mental health, because what I discovered in people's responses are a couple of really interesting things. First of all, most people's greatest regret is not something they did. It's something they didn't do. The missed opportunity, the sins of omission, not the sins of commission. And for many of the respondents, far many, than I, far many more than I anticipated, what was the opportunity they regret not having taken advantage of? The opportunity they regret is that they did not get help for their mental health challenges until they had suffered for far too long and done too much damage to themselves and too much collateral damage to others. And this really makes me wonder about the greater, the greater meaning behind this book, because you, you talked about something which is so important, which is that when somebody dies or is about to die, just as you say, we're so focused on a will, on the physical stuff, how it's gonna be divvied out, who's gonna get the house. But I think you're hitting on something which is much more important here, which is a greater sense of legacy and something you call an ethical will. Yes, yes, exactly right. We all have an estate plan with a material will that gets rid of our crap, frankly. And by the way, most of it no one wants. You know, it's ironic. We spend our lives working to make money to buy stuff that when we're dead, most people don't want most or any of it. Your kids don't want it. Your grandchildren don't want it. I remember one of the saddest parts of my father dying was seeing almost all of his stuff in a heap on the basement floor because even Goodwill didn't want it. So we spend all of that time and money and effort and worry with an estate plan and we often miss out on the fact that it's not our stuff that will sustain our loved ones when we're gone. It's, it's our words. You know, it's very interesting, Jonathan, in Hebrew, the word for word and the word for thing is the same word, davar. You cannot differentiate in Hebrew. In other words, from a psycholinguistic standpoint, words are concrete and real. They are as real as anything we can physically touch and hold. And we ought to use them in that way. And this, these questions, when asked of ourselves, will do two things. Not only will it help you articulate this ethical will for your loved ones when you're gone, but it's a profound opportunity for 
something that I think is going on all over America right now. We're talking about this great reevaluation post-COVID. People are really looking at how they've lived and deciding whether or not that is really aligned with what they believe is important in life and what they really want out of life. And when you ask yourselves and answer these kinds of questions, you are engaged in a very powerful form of self-evaluation, of re-evaluation. And you have the opportunity to be in greater alignment. You know, I have found over the years that the unhappiest, most tortured people I know are the people whose professed values and lived values are not the same. And that dissonance is so painful. You know, it's very nice when other people are proud of us, but if we're not proud of ourselves, it's actually very painful when other people are proud of us. So these questions, this book is an opportunity to be a part of this great reevaluation that's happening in our country right now and should be happening. It's, a, it's so sad that it takes a pandemic or a gray spot on an MRI or the death of a loved one to impel us to rethink the alignment or lack thereof in our lives. And, and this book is honestly a way of doing it without tragedy having to come first. I'm fascinated by this idea of an ethical will. I had never heard about it before I spent time with this book. Can you tell us a little bit about the background of it? Jews have been creating ethical wills uh, since the 11th century uh, in Italy and France. And it was originally a letter of, for lack of a better word, instruction written by a father to a son for the son to have when the father uh, died. It, it then spread out to be to fathers and daughters and sons, mothers to daughters and sons, and then people who were childless to their closest family uh, and friends. And they are extraordinarily powerful. The oldest one we know of that still exists is a thousand years old. And it's so interesting that, you know, you were surprised by it in this sense that this is something for everyone. But outside of the Jewish community, almost no one has heard of it. And uh, every podcaster, every interviewer, talk show host, etc., they hit on this. First of all, I included my, my own ethical will to my children in the book. And that really got people's attention. Uh, and, and, and so this is a very old, this is a thousand-year-old tradition. But one, we do not reap the benefit of enough today. And you know, if, if COVID has taught us anything... If it did anything, it was to strip away our sense of invulnerability. And it's really true that you never know. You know, I didn't know Jonathan, my father had Alzheimer's. I didn't know that my last conversation with my father was my last conversation with my father. I didn't know that one visit he could speak and then the next visit he wouldn't speak again. So I guess if I had to summarize the book in, in a couple of words, I would say its real message is, don't wait. Don't wait to ask yourself these questions, to examine your life, to, to change your life, to make it more beautiful and more meaningful, and, and to bequeath all of that meaning and beauty to the people you love. So what does an ethical will sound like? What does it look like on a page? I, I, I'm really curious just to, to get a sense of it. I think the easiest way to conceive of it is a letter. Mine literally begins, Dear Aaron and Hannah. And I find that that's a very good prompt for people to, to achieve some kind of flow in their writing, especially if you have asked and answered the questions I'm suggesting. You know, let me say a word about these questions. My editor asked me, she said, how did you come up with these 12 questions in this order? It it's just creates such an amazing unfolding. And I answered 35 years and 15 minutes. B 
Because what are these questions really? These are the questions I've been asking families for 35 years when I gather with them to talk about a loved one who has died and I'm trying to get my arms around the truth of this person's life. You know, obituaries only give us the facts of a person's life, but our story is the truth of our life. You know, the fact that I was born on June 3rd in 1960 in St. Louis Park, Minnesota, it doesn't tell you a whole lot about me. It's, it's, those are facts, they're not truths. And these questions are meant to help the truth of our lives unfold and to help us ask ourselves, are we living our truth? And are we really going to pass the truth of our life on to the people we love? And, and so that, it looks like a letter to, to answer your question very specifically. Um, and each one is different. When I lead these workshops, I've been leading ethical will writing workshops for, I don't know, more than a decade all over the country. And when I ask people, I give them only 15 minutes after I kind of look at these questions and the materialism versus versus the word and how, and how our words are, are actually much more impactful and meaningful than any material thing. When I, after I do the setup for it, I literally only give people 15 minutes to write their ethical will and, and they can't believe it, but I say, I'm serious, 15 minutes and you will be amazed at what flows out of you. And then 15 minutes later, I invite volunteers to come up and read their letters and it is staggeringly powerful. There are always tears, not just from the author, but, but from everyone there who's listening. It's such a powerful and important thing to, to speak our truth. Are there any people that come to mind or wills that were shared with you that you might want to share with us or tell us a little bit about? You know, the ones that I find to be the most poignant are the ones where the author, the storyteller of his or her own story is honest about their flaws and their regrets and are and vulnerable enough to share it. You know, the difference between saying, I wasn't a perfect mother and saying, I hope you can forgive me for not taking the time to ever tuck you in and read to you at night. Every child deserves that and I'm sorry, I didn't do it for you. And I hope you'll do it for your children. I mean, if you can get, if you can really strip the paint off of it and really tell your story, you, you will be embraced as, as a great teacher for your loved ones when you're gone and for now. So I would say the, the ones that are the most vulnerable are powerful. The ones that emphasize really the small things that loom so large in memory. Um, you know, I know this from the death of my own father and I know this from walking through cemeteries. You know, one of the questions in the book is what do you want your epitaph to be? Because when, when you have to tell your story as if it's going to be on your headstone, meaning 15 characters per line and four lines total, when you have to distill who you were, who you are and who you were down to that level of essentialism, it's very instructive and powerful. You know, Jonathan, it's no secret I spent a lot of time in cemeteries and I'm always struck by the fact that despite each of us being unique human beings leading unique lives, there's an extraordinary degree of uniformity to the inscriptions on headstones. They almost all say exactly the same thing, which is with minor variation, something like loving wife, mother, grandmother, friend, loving husband, father, grandfather, friend, brother, not, not your GPA, not your resume, not your grandchild's GPA, 
not your zip code, not your net worth, none of it. It all comes down to the tiny handful, and none of us has more than a tiny handful, of truly intimate relationships of love. That's it. And if you can remember that, not just when you're thinking about your death, but as we live our lives, then our lives will be imbued with far deeper meaning and, and joy, frankly. You know, when, when I ask the question in the book, what is love? The, the short answer, I mean, the, the answers are so beautiful, but if I had to summarize them for you, I would say in a word that love is sacrifice. People love most the people they sacrifice the most for. We tend to think of sacrifice as a net loss. You know, she made so many difficult sacrifices. He made the ultimate sacrifice. We think in our culture of sacrifice as a loss when in fact, it's a tremendous net gain of love. You know, uh, um, sorry to be uh, harping on Hebrew words for a second time, but the Hebrew word for sacrifice comes from the same root as the word for relatives, as the word for drawing near or close. The ancients made sacrifices in order to draw nearer to God. It's the same uh, word root uh, for the word to gather together, to be close. So here again, we see that when we live our lives, the more we sacrifice, the more we give, the, the, the richer our lives are with love. And no one, you know, this is Anne Frank's idea, no one becomes poorer by giving. And I think maybe you can also clarify that these ethical wills are not supposed to be maybe handing down instructions on how to live, or maybe they are, but more of storytelling, more of connection. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, look, each one is a reflection of the individual who creates it. But generally speaking, it's much better to show than to tell. And the book is constructed in a way to create more storytelling and less list making, right? And, yeah. and less, uh, less pedagogy and more heart and soul. You know, there are questions in the book like, when was a time you led with your heart? Because we, we privilege due diligence in our culture. But there are times when, in fact, most people's most important meaningful, life-changing, powerful, uplifting decisions were when they said, due diligence be damned. And, and there are you know, questions like, have you ever had to cut someone out of your life who was toxic? And you know, what is love? What is your regret? What was your greatest mistake? What's the best piece of advice anyone ever gave you? These kinds of things start to create a story of your life lessons in a way that, that will be, you know, deeply moving. And of course, the last question is, if you could speak at your own funeral, what would your final blessing to your loved ones be? I always ask that at the end when I'm doing what clergy call an intake meeting with a family to prepare them for a funeral and to prepare myself to write the eulogy, I always ask um, something that goes like this. I would say, um, you know, let's assume for a moment that your dad was here right now, in a way he has been here, but I mean literally here, hiding under the table, listening to everything we've said. And then we end our conversation and I'm in my car and the phone rings and it's your dad. And he says to me, Rabbi, I, I, heard, I heard what all the kids had to say and it was beautiful and it was true, even the difficult parts. And I don't dispute a single word of it, but 
Rabbi, this is what I want you to say tomorrow to my family and my friends who will be there. I want to give the, the deceased the final word. And so my last question in the book is, what, what will your final, what would you like your final blessing to be for your loved ones if you could stand up at your own funeral? And it's so beautiful what people say. And then, of course, this goes back to this, my two-word summary of the book. Ideally, this, isn't, this encourages people not to wait. Don't wait to say these things to the people you love until you can't say them. Yeah, and I'd, I'd love if you could share a few more words on this idea of, you know, what do you regret and this issue of regret and, and the pain of dying with regret. And I think of so many cases. I just, just recently, I, I know of someone who, who lost his brother and they had stopped talking in the last year of their life. And that was a bond that could never really be sewed up again. And it just, to me, brings this very powerful question of regret right into the forefront of our lives. Well, let me ask you, did your friend regret it? Or do you think you would regret it? Because it's not the same thing. I think, yeah, I, I think my friend did regret the, the extinguishing relationship. Okay. So, obviously, I, well, I think the lesson there, of course, is don't wait. Yet again, you know, if, if there's a festering wound, address it. But I'm going to give you the other side of the coin, and this might surprise you. In my last book, which was called The Beauty of What Remains, and you and I spoke about it, I put one little paragraph in the book that I thought would help a handful of people. And I was shocked by how many people wanted to talk about it and how many people reached out to me on social media to thank me for it. It was just a little paragraph, five sentences. What was it about? It was about the fact that, in my experience, most people die the way they live. And we have these fantasies to the contrary. I get calls that go something like this. You know, Steve, uh, my mother, I've never ever had a good relationship with her. She was, I, I, she's every encounter I feel bad about myself afterwards. She's narcissistic and withholding. And um, I, and I just stopped talking to her 10 years ago because it was better for me. I mean, and, and I text her on her birthday and that's it. But now she's been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. She's got three to six months to live. And, and I'm afraid I'm going to feel really guilty when she dies. And I say to people, I don't think you will. I think you're going to be relieved. And they look at me with a kind of shock and embarrassment. As in, that's true, but doesn't that make me an awful person? No. It, it just makes you a person. There are toxic relationships in life that, that, that cannot be and should not be tolerated. And most people who have terrible dysfunction with someone, when that person dies, there is a sense of relief. And also, as per these fantasies, I also get calls like, you know, I haven't been close to my mother and but now she's dying and I'm going to go back to visit her and, and I'm really looking forward to, you know, having a, a, an incredible visit with her and really connecting. And, and I, I tell people again, I say, I hope you're right, but I want to manage your expectations because people behave in death the same way they behave in life. And you're, you're likely, I hope I'm wrong, but you're likely to be disappointed again by your mother. So be prepared. Because that kind of deathbed reconciliation is mostly a fantasy. And the death of someone with, who's been toxic in our life is mostly a relief. And so I, I wouldn't put it in the category, most people wouldn't put it, if they're being really honest, in the category of regret. But as per your question about, you know, regret, it, it is really about the the missed opportunities more than anything else. 
the missed opportunity to get help sooner, the missed opportunity to have a certain kind of experience, not having another child, you know, um, not changing one's life in some way when the opportunities are readily available. Uh, because uh, it sins, as I said, you know, sins of commission, these, these mistakes and regrets about things we did, there's a way to deal with that. There's reconciliation. There is, there is forgiveness, right? There is repentance and forgiveness. And, and, and you can say, I'm sorry I did that, Jonathan. Please forgive me. It will never happen again. But you cannot regain a missed opportunity. It's gone. I was wondering if you could share any of the touching letters that you came across in this book or some of the famous letters or wills that you've heard about or have looked at, any that really struck struck you in a deep place or surprised you? Well, to be honest with you, I don't have the book in front of me right now, but okay. I will tell you one uh, that comes to mind and particularly given what we were speaking about in the first segment, this this terrible darkness that has eclipsed the light in our country. It was an ethical will published anonymously in a Yiddish newspaper during the time of the Warsaw Ghetto from a mother to her daughter. And it essentially says, if you survive this war, go out into the world and be kind be a beacon, a model, a vessel of kindness, because that is the only hope we have, which I think is quite an extraordinary ethical legacy, given the circumstances of the woman who wrote it. Well, Rabbi Leader, as we, as we close out here, would you be willing to share some of your ethical will, the letter that you have written to your children? Yeah, of course. Dear Aaron and Hannah, the finest moments of my life have been with you and mommy, sitting around our kitchen table laughing. I never feel richer or more at peace with the world than in those moments. That kind of love is more important than anything. Spend your life with a person as good as mommy and you will have many of those moments. And don't worry, you will know in your heart when that person arrives. It is a powerful, healing, beautiful kind of love. Grasp it. Have a healthy relationship with work. Do your best at it, but your work is not the same thing as your life. I often confuse the two and hope you will less so. Spend time in nature. It will remind you of God, of true greatness. It will calm you, cause you to pause, breathe, Stand still, listen. It will help you feel humble and small in profound and important ways. Think of me when you are out there. Feel and know that my soul is with you. Do not roll your eyes at religion. Celebrate what makes you different. There is much to learn, much from our ancestors, from prayer, the Sabbath, candles, warm bread and wine, generosity and faith while gathered around a table with people you love, much. When you worry, remember that most things turn out better than we expect. When anxiety, sorrow, loss and pain come, lean on the people you love. Do not suffer alone. It is much worse that way. This is another reason you should look for someone like mommy to love. I would not have been able to breathe without her. I used to love to dance, but when I became a more public person, I stopped dancing at weddings and parties. I allowed my fear of what others might think of me, fear of being a spectacle, to keep me from dancing. I regret that now. It was a bad example to you and robbed me of joy. Don't let fear of what others might think keep you from dancing or singing 
or loving. Let nothing and no one suppress what your soul longs for. Live so that you do not die with a longing soul. Count your blessings. When you are feeling less than or want more or are mired in self-pity, which happens to us all, look around and count your blessings again and again and again until you tally a hundred of them. Everything is easier when you are grateful. Feel for others. People behave badly because they are damaged. Let your first impulse be one of empathy. That being said, there will be a handful of people in your life who demand too much, who are mean, narcissistic, negative, causing you to feel terrible about yourself. Cut these people out of your life. You cannot fix them. Be good and the rest works out. See the world with the people you love. Cherish time. It matters so much more than things. Mine with you and mommy has made my life worth living. I wish for you that kind of love now. I wish for you that kind of love when I am gone. Say the mourner's prayer and light a candle for me when I am gone. Feel its warmth and know I love you still, Dad. I've been speaking with Senior Rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles, Rabbi Steve Leader. He's the author of the new book, For You When I Am Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. Rabbi Leader, I, uh, I always feel lucky to have you back on the program. Thank you for spending the time with us. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity and I appreciate you. You are, you are skilled and soulful. And you can purchase Rabbi Leader's new book, For You When I Am Gone, when it's released on June 6th. Well, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. We invite all of you to join our new Facebook group and continue the conversation and share your thoughts on what you heard today on Ethical Wills. Have you received or written an ethical will yourself? We'd love to know whether this resonates with you. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you next week.